From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. In this second week of the election campaign, there's been a lot of talk about the possibility of a hung parliament. This is reinforced by the fact that both the Coalition and Labor are sitting on very low primary votes. Independent candidates are being grilled on who they would support if there was a hung parliament. Andrew Wilkie, who's the independent MP for the Tasmanian seat of Clark, has lived experience of such a parliament in the Gillard years, and he joins us today to reflect on those and also how he would handle the situation if it was repeated. Andrew Wilkie, you made a deal with Prime Minister Julia Gillard. Tell us how that worked out and did you later regret it? Well, listeners would recall back in 2010, both the Labor Party and the Coalition both ended on 72 seats uh, and both were looking to get four additional seats from the crossbench to get their absolute majority. So after a a lot of toing and froing, uh, Adam Bant, um, uh, Rob Oakeshott, Tony Windsor and myself all agreed to give certainty of supply and confidence to Julia Gillard, gave her 76 sheets, um, and uh, she was the government for the next three years. Now, I stayed in that uh, arrangement with Julia Gillard for only 18 months of the three years because my support was conditional on a number of things, uh, including deep gambling reform. And after 18 months, uh, the Prime Minister told me that she wouldn't be able to deliver on those reforms, so I withdrew my support. Of course, the government survived because uh, just before uh, this turn of events, the Prime Minister had poached uh, an LNP member, Peter Slipper, from the opposition benches to sit as the Speaker, so the government survived, although it only survived just because not long after that, uh, this uh, Peter Slipper fell into disrepute. He couldn't occupy the Speaker's chair. He sat in his office, so uh, the numbers were, were even again. So although I didn't have a formal deal with the government, for the next 18 months, I I was very much in play. Uh, In fact, I think I was more in play because there was no standing agreement. They had to come to me on every vote, on every bill, uh, to persuade me of the merits of the bill. And I I think I was actually more effective in that second 18 months. Um, Me aside, though, uh, my observation is that that three years was a very effective three years for the parliament. Uh, It was stable. Uh, It was reformist. Um, and I, I think uh, a lot of people will will uh, think back fondly uh, about those three years of what I'll call a power-sharing parliament. When you broke off after that 18 months, you weren't withdrawing your support for supply and confidence, were you? No, I, I, uh, I withdrew from my uh, so-called deal altogether. So after those 18 months, there was no promise uh, of my vote on supply or confidence. Uh, which I think, again, helps to explain why for that for the second half of that parliament, uh, I felt I had more influence on the government. And it helps to explain why, uh, as we approach the 2022 election, uh, I've been very clear that, I, again, I won't, I won't do a formal deal with, with any party, um, and which I note is the, the, the lines I think most of the high-profile independents uh, are also using um, Mind you, it's also the lines the Prime Minister and the opposition are, are using. Everyone's promising no deals. But, I mean, that's not to say there won't be a need for everyone to talk to each other and and uh, maybe some assurance given about at least supply and confidence in the future. 
So those assurances about supply and confidence, which of course are separate from support on legislation generally, they have to actually be given, don't they, for a government to be formed, to get underway. Otherwise, how does it all begin? Well, indeed. Uh, I mean, I, if, if the incumbent government seeks to try and govern, I suppose it can just reconvene the parliament and give it a go. But certainly, if there was to be a change of government, I assume the Governor-General would need to have some way to be assured that the uh, the new government will have a majority on the floor. Now, um, because in 2010, uh, there were actually formal contracts drawn up. In my case, it was, I think, a, an eight-page formal contract signed by Julie Gillard uh, and signed by myself. I mean, that that was a very tangible, physical thing. The Prime Minister could wave around in the air, could even show the Governor-General. I mean, if, if next time around, if no one's going to have formal contracts, uh, I, I, I'm unsure exactly how it might play out. Perhaps a, a letter or something at least saying there's no deal, but, uh, uh, you know, you know, initially at least... Uh, you would have my confidence. But but it wouldn't be a deal, I, I, I argue, in that there wouldn't be any um, uh, payoff, if I can use that term, for that assurance. It would just simply be... You know, in fact, I think uh, after the 2019 election, uh, people like uh, Rebecca Sharkey, my colleague on the crossbench, um, that's a bit what happened there, that there was no deal between Rebecca Sharkey and Scott Morrison when the numbers were really tight. But uh, clearly, the, the Prime Minister had reason to, to feel he would have at least that crossbench's support in the event of a of a vote on confidence. So would you be willing to provide such a letter saying, initially, I'm going to support supply and, and confidence? It's difficult for me to answer that unambiguously and unconditionally because so much of the outcome, well, everything about the outcome needs to be seen you know, who got how many seats, uh, which party has a majority of seats, uh, what does my own community think in the circumstances. But I, I, I will go so far as to say that, you know, I see my role as being a constructive one. Uh, it's it's to ensure we have an effective government for the next three years. My, my job isn't to pull down any party or pull down any government. So uh, if, if the Australian community elects a group of people no party has an absolute majority, um, I will look for ways to be constructive. Um, and if it means avoiding another election, uh, I would be prepared to write a letter. Uh, you know, But only going that far, saying supply and confidence, um, and you know, it's something I reserve the right to withdraw at any time, uh, and it's not in return for anything, so it's not a deal as such. Now, a number of the independent candidates, the people who are not in the parliament but have a, a chance of, of joining the crossbench, are refusing to spell out their position, as you have very clearly. Do you think that they should do so? No, I, I respect the independence of all of the the emerging independents, um, you know, and the new independent candidates. It's not my place to lecture them on what they should do, and I, and I respect the fact that. They would want to see who gets the majority of votes, who gets the majority of seats, what their own communities are telling them at that point in time, 
I, I get frustrated with some in the media, not yourself, of course, Michelle, but I, I do get frustrated with some in the media who keep looking at politics through the prism of a two-party system. Well, it, it's changing. You know, it, it's changing to there are now more voices in the parliament. We have quite a large crossbench already. It, 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 it may well get somewhat bigger. And people have got to understand that independents are, are exactly that. I mean, the moment I say and I'm not, but if I was to say in the event of a hung parliament, I will support Labor or I will support Liberal. Well, the moment I open my mouth and say that, I think I've lost my independence. I may as well go and join that party. So, you know, I I just think some commentators need to get another prism because things have changed. And and I think they're they're set to keep changing. Uh, You know, after the 2000 and the 43rd parliament, when I was first elected, after that first three years of power sharing with, with Adam Bant and Rob and Tony and me, a lot of commentators were saying, well, that was an interesting experiment and, uh, you know, they'll all, they're all set to go. But at the 2013 election, I think the crossbench stayed about the same size. A couple did go, but a couple of new people joined us. I, I think this is, this is going to be a permanent feature of the House of Representatives that the major parties will be diminished and the crossbench will be, will be bigger and often in play. I think the thing is, though, that you've spelled out not where you'd end up, but the sort of process that you'd go through. And these, some of these candidates, well, most all of these candidates, I think, won't even go through that process, won't spell out that process. Well, again, I'm not going to criticise people I haven't even met, and I don't know why they're taking the positions they are. Um, if, I, if, I, if they give me a call and ask what I think, I'll tell them how I've navigated my way through the last 12 years and what my community has thought of it um, at the certainly at the 2013 16 19 and now the 2022 election I've, I've had a I've had a no deals position um, I've explained how I'm going to approach things and it, it's always been well received by my community in fact my primary vote and two-party preferred has increased at every election so Whatever formulation I'm using seems to work. It might be something that some of these uh, these new independent candidates might want to just observe and think about. I think I think it is useful to give some indication of your thought processes, so you're not a complete mystery. Now the major parties are arguing, of course, strongly against any prospect of minority government, and the prime minister in particular says that it's a recipe for chaos. What you're saying is that. You don't think that was the experience during the Gillard years and presumably you don't think that would be the experience again if it happened. Frankly, the the major parties are misleading the community when they talk about chaos. The fact is that the 2010 election um, created a a three years or was the start of three years of stable and effective governance. Um, That parliament uh, dealt with hundreds of pieces of legislation. It gave birth to the NDIS, um, to education reforms. Uh, Yes, Julia Gillard did fail me on gambling reform, and and I remain very critical of her for that. But otherwise, it was stable uh, and it was reformist. Um, And anyone claiming otherwise is is rewriting history. Um, And, you know, you look around the world at, at, at other countries... Um, New Zealand often has a, very, a, a power-sharing government. European countries often have power-sharing parliaments. It, it's just unremarkable. Um, but we have this 
uh, an urban myth or a myth of some kind in Australia perpetuated by the parties who have a deep conflict of interest. You know, they want people to think it will be anarchy and chaos. And it wasn't in, in the 43rd Parliament. And, and, and an interesting uh, footnote to that is the manager of government business in the 43rd Parliament, the last power-sharing Parliament, uh, the manager of government business was, of course, Anthony Albanese. You know, I, I credit him with being very skilled and effective at corralling the crossbench and ensuring the stability of the parliament. Now, that's not an endorsement of a, of a Labor government here, but it is an observation that if uh, Anthony Albanese finds himself negotiating with the crossbench, you know, he's got form. And I suppose I could probably say the same about Scott Morrison over the last few years, because he's been either almost in or in minority for most of it. And he's managed to keep what I'll call the independent crossbenchers um, pretty much online, in line. So how has he been like to deal with? Oh, well, I've had very little to do with Scott Morrison, uh, you know, being, well, some people call me a lefty, I'd call myself a centrist, but there's been little need for Scott Morrison to deal with me. I mean, in Rebecca Sharkey, Helen Haynes, Zali Stiegel and Bob Catter, he's had enough allies to generally get him through the difficult patches with a couple of obvious losses. But I understand he's been quite effective with my colleagues, just as I found Anthony Albanese very effective when he had to deal with me in my first term. I don't know why the uh, the government and the opposition are saying what they're saying at the moment and ruling out ruling out any, any deals. The, I, I think that is showing contempt for the community. I mean, the way I see it is... The community will elect 150 people, and it's the it is the the duty of that 150 people to make it work. Uh, it's not a case of saying to the electorate, "You got it wrong," and we're going to go back to the polls and keep going back to the polls till you got it right. And I am confident, looking at the current crossbench, well, with, with a couple, well, with one obvious exception, uh, you know, the, the the majority of the current crossbench are good, solid people who can be counted on. And the high-profile independent candidates that are standing on the mainland are overwhelmingly good, solid people who have a good understanding of the public interest and would make a power-sharing parliament work. When you talk about one exception, are you talking about Craig Kelly here? <laughs> I, was trying, I was trying not to make this personal, but uh, uh, I mean, I think it's self-evident that Craig Kelly is the outlier and uh, seems to be very unlikely he'll be re-elected. You know, but that leaves that leaves the other the, the six of us. It leaves uh, Bob Catter, Adam Bant, Rebecca Sharkey, Helen Haynes, Ali Siegel, and myself. You know, we range from hard left to hard right, and everything in between. But I think all of us, including Bob Catter, are good representatives of our communities. And in recent times, have you all managed to work together? Even though, of course, on some issues you differ, but has there been a, a good spirit among these half dozen people? There's been a fabulous spirit, and I suspect a better spirit than than among the members of the major parties. We don't have factions; we just we're just all different, um, and we all just answer to our communities. We come together and work together when our interests overlap. Sometimes we help each other out, even when we don't agree with each other. Like I, I've, I've I will often second someone's motion or bill, not because I support it, but because procedurally they need a, a second signature. And I think it's all of our views are worth debating and airing, even ones I disagree with. Um, and looking at these uh, independents on the mainland, I mean, uh, there's some fabulous talent there. I, I, I don't see anyone I wouldn't be happy to try and work with. In majority government, 
And as you say, the present government has been only in a very narrow majority in recent times. But in majority government, can crossbenchers really get much? Yes, look, I think that's another myth perpetrated by the major parties that a vote for an independent is a wasted vote in in a majority in a parliament where there's a majority government that that's not my experience uh, my experience is that regardless of the numbers the crossbench gives voice to a lot of Australians who are otherwise sidelined for example I'm very outspoken against the live animal export trade well I speak for millions of people when I when I talk up about that issue also uh the crossbench can pursue issues that the parties run from. I'm also very outspoken on gambling reform. Well, the major parties are recipients of millions of dollars in donations from the gambling industry. They're conflicted. They don't want to take on, take on the industry. So people like me can take on issues like that. I think we also moderate the government to some degree, obviously much more when we're power sharing. But I, I think even in this last parliament, the, the, well, this the the parliament that's just ended, the moderate independent, well, no, all, all of us on the crossbench have been a moderating influence and we've driven issues like uh, the push for a federal ICAC long before Labor got on board. You know, we've been very outspoken on a, on a, on a number of issues and put pressure on the government. And I, and I would also add that if you're a well-regarded independent, the government of the day craves your imprimatur the controversial reforms and policies. You know, my, my vote has often not counted over the last nine years, but that hasn't stopped ministers um, getting in touch with me and lobbying me and, and seeking my public imprimatur for it because it will help them politically. So, um, and in fact, I, I'd, I'd also add to that, Michelle, that I think my position is backed up by my community. In my second term, uh, the 44th Parliament, Tony Abbott had 90 seats. So I was completely and utterly sidelined uh, in the House. It, it wasn't a very prosperous period for my electorate. There wasn't much extraordinary funding coming my electorate's way. Now, you might think at the next election, at the end of that 44th Parliament, my numbers would drop. But in fact, my primary vote and my two-party preferred both increased strongly, which I think is evidence that my community is more interested in having someone fighting for them and representing them and being a you know, pretty decent sort of character. I think they're more interested in that than the pork barrelling. Well, just talking about pork barrelling, one of the uh, criticisms of minority government is that those who are on the cross bench can extract a huge amount from the government in order to keep them on side, whether they have formal agreements or not. And of course, Tony Windsor notably got huge amounts of funding for his electorate. Is that fair? Uh, it is It is a fact, but no, it's not fair. Uh, and in fact, in my first term, I attracted an uh, you know, enormous amount of funding uh, when I was you know, in that power-sharing parliament. And more recently, when, um, when the numbers have tightened up, I've had a bit of success as well. Look, I, 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 I pursue the funding and I, I happily accept the funding when I can get it. It's my job. But no, it's not fair. In a fair country, uh, all uh, projects and proposals would be assessed on merit and public funds distributed accordingly. Uh, but it's not, it's just not that way. M mind you, I, 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 on a positive note, 
the overwhelming majority of federal government expenditure goes out in routine manner, in routine manners and disbursements and grant programs. Um, it is it is a small minority of the federal budget goes out in pork barrelling, but boy, doesn't it stick out like a sore thumb? Indeed, and you're very honest about it, more than most politicians, I have to say. Look, more generally, can we just talk about how the election's going in your state of Tasmania and more broadly? In Tasmania, there are marginal seats which are up for grabs, Bass and Braddon on the coalition side, Lyons on the Labor side. How do you see the contest at the moment? As I sit here, Michelle, uh, too soon to tell. As I go about in my own community, there is a widespread dislike of Scott Morrison, but an equally widespread uncertainty about Anthony Albanese. You know, if Labor don't win Bass and Braddon, they're going to have a very big hill to climb. But uh, Bridget Archer in Bass, who famously, of course, crossed the floor on an integrity commission, uh, she's, she's well regarded up in Bass. I'm giving uh, Bridget Archer a, a red-hot chance of holding Bass. Don't know about Braddon. Uh, I would expect Lyons actually to stay with Labor. But uh, I make the point again, if, if, if Labor don't win both Bass and Braddon, they've got a, you know, I, I think we're, we're heading back to a discussion about a hung parliament. Well, we don't need to talk about your seat of, of Clark. There's a 22% margin there in your favour. So let me ask you uh, more generally, what issues are resonating in Tasmania? Look, it's interesting that all of the so-called teal independents on the mainland, although they're obviously not a party, but they're, they're all, and me to some degree, are all identified the same key issues for Canberra. Strong, much stronger action on climate change, cleaning up politics in Canberra, starting with an, a federal integrity agency, but that's only the start, uh, and also gender equality. And, and I'd agree, I think they are three of the biggest issues to be dealt with by the next government. Here in Tasmania, there are issues closer to home that are troubling my community. Uh, the problems with uh, the public health care system in Tasmania, I mean, it is woeful. It is, it is worse than in any other state. Uh, and that would be the that would be the sentiment in all five Tasmanian electorates. Uh, there's also a housing crisis in Tasmania. Our our housing used to be very affordable, and it's now some of the most unaffordable to purchase and rent in the country. Traffic congestion in the capital. We we're a victim of our own success here in Hobart. The the pandemic has, in, in some bizarre ways, been the making of the city. A lot of people have moved here, and the city is choked with traffic and uh, inadequate infrastructure, and in, across the whole of the state, government support, government pensions and payments, and the cost of living. The you know for, we're the thirteenth biggest economy in the world by some measures. We're the richest people per capita in the world, uh, but yet we've got pensions and payments, government pensions and payments below the poverty line. Not just unemployment benefits, and people are really struggling. You know they're the sort of things that people are coming to me and talking to me on the street, and they apply right across the whole state. And just looking nationally, what do you think of the quality and the tone of the national campaign in, in this election compared to others that you've been in? In my opinion, this is the worst campaign I've observed uh, as far as the mudslinging and the dishonesty. I mean, I, there used to be some limits on the dishonesty of the political parties and the candidates, but they there seem to be no limits at this election. You know, there's a, there's a billboard down the road from... Uh, Clive Palmer's United Australia Party promising three years, uh, sorry, a 3% maximum mortgage rate. I mean, 
hey, no, that's just nonsense. You know, what the government is saying about our emissions reductions, it's just not borne out by the, by the facts. Uh, what Labor's saying about the government's going to roll out uh, welfare cards for all age pensioners, it's just not true. You know, all of, all of the parties. The Greens saying their vote's going up. Um, now, Adam's a mate of mine, but, you know, when he says something like that, it's actually not borne out by the last, uh, you know, by recent elections. It just seems now that all parties feel they have uh, freedom to say whatever they think, and uh, this is the worst I've ever seen it. And, and what they don't understand is people are wise to a lot of this stuff, and people have had a gutful of politics and politicians and, and dare I say, some of the political parties. But yet the political parties think they can behave like this and then stand in a shopping centre four weeks before polling day, hand out leaflets and win the trust of the community. It's too late. It's too late. You've, in my opinion, the best re-election strategy is, is do your best and work hard for the whole three years and the election looks after itself. On that note, Andrew Wilkie, thank you very much for talking with the Conversations Politics podcast. Thank you to my producer, Ellen Duffy. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, you might also like the Conversations new election podcast, Below the Line, hosted by former ABC presenter John Fain. To listen and subscribe to that podcast, search Below the Line on theconversation.com.au or on your favourite podcast app. That's all for now, but we'll be back with more election interviews in the coming weeks. Goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevier. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.